Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. We have made it now to part three in what will ultimately be a seven-part series. All of the notes thus far and recordings uh, we should have uploaded to our website at new-life-ministries.org. Uh, we go through lots and lots of scripture, so I would strongly recommend uh, getting a copy of the notes so you can follow along with us so that you're not having to flip around in the Bible and try to find all the references. Um, we are in the middle of a very, very important discussion, and we've entitled this third part, uh, glory gained and lost in the Old Testament. We're still trying to move through the Old Testament scriptures first to build a foundation so that when we get into the New Testament, we have a little bit of a better understanding of what God's glory is and what God is looking for in you and me so that he can show us his glory. I trust that as we're moving through this Bible study that you, like I, are, are being inspired to hunger, to thirst, to long for a deeper experience in God's glory. He wants us to see His glory. He wants to put His glory upon us, especially in these last days where we're surrounded with darkness and perversion and violence and confusion. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. God wants his glory to rise upon the church in greater and greater ways in these last days. So be encouraged to go beyond just listening to these Bible studies once a week. Dig into the scriptures, fast and pray, Call on the Lord. Tell the Lord, God, we're not going to be satisfied with anything less than your presence and your glory. Religion and just going through the motions and the forms is not going to satisfy. We want you. We want you to show up. We want you to move, to work, to display your glory in all of the earth in these last days. Well, We've come, if you're following in the notes, as I mentioned, to part three, and we'll pick it up on page 16, and this is uh, Roman numeral five. We started here last time, and we're going to move deeper into this. Glory departed Ichabod. You may recall the root word in that name is the word for glory, kabod. That's the Hebrew word found probably over 200 times in the Old Testament. The, the weight of, of God, the, the radiance of who he is, his power, his mercy, his goodness, his forgiveness, his faithfulness. It's the shining forth of God's very nature, his very essence. It's something that's visible, it's something that can be felt like fire, and it has a definite effect on people 
who are in the presence of that glory. Well, as the title of this part indicates, glory can be gained and glory can be lost. We saw in the case of even a heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar, God himself said that he bestowed greatness and glory upon him, but when his heart became arrogant and proud, he was stripped of his glory. And that's a scary thought. And this section that we're now in, looking at the story of Ichabod, it should definitely put fear into our hearts, the fear of God. And I want to begin tonight with a portion of Scripture that is not found in the outline, but I think it sort of sets the stage for this entire last part of our discussion here in part three. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 12, and maybe skip over certain parts of it. But uh, Paul is saying, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Speaking about the Israelites and their experience of coming out of Egypt, passing through the Red Sea. They were all baptized in the Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Now, let me pause here for a second before we go any further. In the scriptures, God gives us numerous examples. They're not all positive. And this is the point I want to stress here. God gives us positive examples to emulate, to follow, to imitate. He also gives us negative examples of how not to do things, what not to do, and the consequences if someone does those things. So it's both a positive and a negative reinforcement. And... He goes on to say, uh, after what we just read, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now listen carefully to the next verses, starting with verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples. Very important word here, an example. We often think of an example only in terms of something positive. But that's not how God always works. He places negative examples both in the scriptures, and hear me carefully here, he'll place negative examples in your path, in your life, also for you to see. They're not to stumble you. They're not to cause you to give up on your faith and give up on God. They're allowed for a very specific purpose. Let me read this again. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things 
as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. So, we should definitely imitate examples of high conduct, morality, purity, and righteousness, but just as much we should not follow, we should not imitate, we should not copy those who have done, as we just read here, they were idolaters, and others committed sexual immorality. Verse 8, what is the point? 23,000 of them died. In other words, there are consequences when we do the wrong thing. Verse 9, we should not test the Lord as some of them did, and there were consequences. They were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did. What happens when you grumble? There are consequences. What happened to them? They were killed by the destroying angel. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Reminder, Paul's writing to the church. He's writing to born-again believers in the Corinthian church. He's telling them all these examples in the Old Testament, they're written for a reason. They're written down as warnings for us about what we should not do, and if we have any thoughts of doing any of them, beware, there are consequences. Now, you may say, oh, come on, brother, that sounds like Old Testament legalism. Well, you can call it whatever you it, whatever you want to call it, but God calls it warnings. We in the New Testament are warned numerous times, just as they were warned in the Old Testament. Verse 11 again, these things happen to them as examples, not good examples, bad examples of what not to do, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What we're studying in this part of our Bible study is a very serious example of what not to do. And if I were to give this whole section another title, it would be, here's how to lose the glory of God. Not that we want to lose it, but this is a stern warning from God. Look at this example. It's a very bad one. And here's how my glory will depart. Ichabod we'll find later on, the name means glory departed. And 
it's a name given to a child at a time when God's glory was literally lifting off of the nation of Israel. It was departing from Israel because the sin and the corruption had become so grievous. So, we want to look at the positive examples, but this is a very profound warning from God in the Old Testament for those of us who long for the glory of God. Here's what not to do if you don't want to lose the glory of God. And this refers to individuals, it refers to ministries, churches, and congregations. Now, let me recap a little bit that we looked into last time by way of introduction. In 1 Samuel, we have in the opening chapters the story of Hannah and how she cried out to God for a son. God gave her a son named Samuel. And she was so grateful to God for this miracle baby that she promised the Lord she would give him back to the Lord. And sure enough, after the young Samuel was weaned and able to be away from his mother, amazingly, she took the child to the temple and left him in the care of the priest who was in charge of the temple at that time. His name is Eli. And as was established by God at Mount Sinai, uh, Aaron and his sons were given the, the calling of priests, and that was handed down from father to son to grandson. It was something that remained in the family of Aaron from that point on. So fast forward some generations, one of the descendants of Aaron is Eli, and of course Eli and his sons are the priests at that time. Now, let's pick it up again in 1 Samuel 2. By this time, young Samuel is living in the temple under the care and guidance of Eli, and it wasn't exactly an ideal climate for a young boy to be growing up, let alone to be learning about how to minister unto God and how to be a priest of the Lord. He had some really, really rotten examples around him. And the incredible thing, in spite of all that, Samuel grew up to become a mighty prophet of the Lord. Now, 1 Samuel 2, verse 12 and onwards. It says, Eli's sons were wicked men. We saw last time that literally translated, it's they were sons of Belial. They were worthless men. They were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Another translation, they did not know the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, 
the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, Let the fat be burned up first, then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, it had been prescribed through the law of Moses that the offerings that the Israelites brought to the temple and brought to the priests who helped administer the offerings, a portion of those very offerings belonged to the priests. A tithe of everything that came into the house of God was set aside for the sustenance and provision for the priests and their families. That is understandable. That was the law. And even a portion of the meat from an animal sacrifice was set aside to be food for the priests. That was perfectly acceptable and legitimate. That's not what's happening here. This is fascinating, not in a good way, but it's fascinating for me to look at a little more carefully, particularly because of what's mentioned in verse 13. It says, now it was the practice of the priests. It doesn't say it was the law of God. This was the practice, or some Bibles say the custom. Somehow, what was once prescribed in God's word, in God's law, had been perverted into a practice or a custom. We might call it a tradition. Now, there are certain customs or traditions that are carried on from generation to generation um, that are harmless. They're good traditions. They're good customs. There's nothing uh, inherently evil about a custom or a tradition. Unless, and here's a big unless, unless they begin to supersede the very word of God, the law of God, that has already been set down by God. And what was happening here, these practices, these customs and traditions that had become popular and prevalent by the time of Eli and his sons, they were in violation of God's word. That's when a tradition or a custom becomes a serious problem. And what was actually happening here often happens in churches. 
customs and traditions, little by little, replace the Word of God, and they're used as a cover-up for selfishness and for self-serving in the priesthood, in the ministry, and in those who lead. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus gave a scathing rebuke to the religious order of his day, and this is exactly what was happening in Jesus' day with the Pharisees and the scribes and all of the religious elite. We read about it in Mark 7, from verse 7 to 13, and part of this he's quoting straight out of the prophet Isaiah. He replied, Jesus is speaking here, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Pause right there. Their teachings are not the word of God. Their teachings are not the Holy Scriptures. Their teachings are not things taught by the mouth of God. Their teachings are now but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. That's what we were talking about. That's when this becomes very, very dangerous. We've now replaced a direct command of God with a tradition, with a custom. We've let go of the commandments, and we're now holding on to something else. Traditions of men, rules taught by men. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And sadly, this is what often and ultimately happens. Little by little, we set aside scriptural mandates in preference for our own little customs and favorite little practices and traditions. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. That was a clear commandment. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you now say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, it is a gift devoted to God. In other words, what they were doing is saying, oh, I don't need to help my parents anymore. I've devoted that as a gift to the Lord. Jesus is basically saying, that's a bunch of garbage. You're violating one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, and you're using this as a cover-up, a veil for your own selfishness, saying, oh, I don't need to take care of my parents now. I've devoted all that to the Lord. Verse 12, Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify 
the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. This is exactly what had happened in the days of Eli and his sons. These practices were not only not prescribed in the law of Moses, they were in direct violation of commandments that God had given them. One very grievous one is that they were wanting the fat left on the meat so that they could go have a nice barbecue. That was in direct violation of the scriptures. God had told them over and over again, the fat is not yours. The fat belongs to the Lord. Make sure you burn all of the fat on the altar, because it'll be a sweet fragrance to me. It's not for you to consume. Well, they were now making this a practice that before the fat was burned, the best pieces of meat with the fat still on them would be removed and handed over to the priests so that they could cook them and have themselves a nice meal. You know, we're told in Colossians 2, verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles or customs of the world, and not according to Christ. We read in verse 17 that God was watching all of this. God knew what was going on. And it says, the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. Custom or no custom, this was sin in the temple, and God was seeing it. It says, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. These were offerings that sincere Israelites were bringing to the temple because they wanted to offer it to the Lord. And here the priests are trampling on those offerings. They're treating them with contempt. That expression, treating the offering with contempt, in Hebrew is even stronger. It means they were abhorring, desecrating, and blaspheming the Lord's offering. This was a very grievous practice that had come to be a tradition in the house of God. And over the years, I've seen some pretty amazing things that suddenly become almost like the law of the land in churches, and when you ask, where is this in the Bible? Oh, it's not. It's just our custom. It's a tradition that has been handed down, you know, from generation to generation, and this is the way we do things. Yeah, but it's not in the Bible. Matter of fact, it is in direct conflict with the Word of God. Well, that doesn't matter. It's our tradition now. Very dangerous when we start to put traditions above the Word of God. And of course, in the case of Eli and his sons, they had a motive for doing this. It was selfish. They were selfish, they were carnal, 
All they were interested in was getting the meat so that they could feed themselves. And here's where we begin to understand why the sin of these young men was so grievous in the Lord's sight. They had been called by God, because they were in the lineage of Aaron and his sons, they had been given the great privilege of the priesthood. And they mistakenly thought that they could use, misuse, and abuse that office for their own selfish appetites, their own selfish advancement. These sons of Eli were the epitome of selfishness and carnality that can creep into spiritual leadership. And we end up using that office of pastor or priest or elder or whatever the office is, we end up using and abusing that office, demanding some kind of special treatment special privilege because of my ministerial position. Very, very dangerous. So what we have here are worthless shepherds fattening themselves off of the sheep. We're not going to go there, but and it's not in your notes, but you might want to make a note to do some of your own study. Go to Ezekiel 34 and read how God rails against the selfish shepherds of Israel, just using their position of leadership to feed and to benefit themselves, rather than being good shepherds. Jesus gave us the correct model. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't use the sheep just to fatten himself. Well, that's what Eli and his sons were doing. All right, moving along in the story, it gets worse, much worse. 1 Samuel 2, further down, we'll pick it up in verse 22 and continue to verse 26. 1 Samuel 2, 22 to 26. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, his sons, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. What a strange dichotomy we have here. Here's the boy Samuel growing in the Lord, growing in grace, getting to know the Lord, spending his time in the 
presence of God in the temple, ministering unto the Lord. While that's going on, Eli's sons not only are fattening themselves on the meat and the fat of the offerings, they're sleeping with the women who are there at the temple to serve the Lord. Unthinkable. And I want you to follow this carefully. I've highlighted some of these words and even put some of them in all caps in the notes to bring special attention to this. Back to verse 22. Let's read this very slowly. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. This was not something being done undercover. It was not something that was being kept secret. This was widely known. Everyone in Israel apparently had heard about the garbage that was going on in the house of God. Everyone knew about Eli's sons, what they were doing. It says specifically here, Eli heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. We're going to come back to that phrase because it's very key. What they were doing, not just to the women, not just to the ones who were bringing their sacrifices, but to all Israel. And how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These women were there to serve the Lord. And Eli's sons, in their unrestrained carnality, their appetites have now gone beyond the meat and the fat of the sacrifices. It has now led them to wanton sexual immorality, openly, in the temple, right there at the at the entrance to the tent of meeting unbelievable this kind of shameless conduct can only come when what we talked about a little earlier occurs they thought that because of their special privilege of being priests and being a part of a priestly family they were entitled to things that an average Israelite was not entitled to. Special exceptions were to be made for them because they were in the priest's family. This kind of shameless conduct that was broadcast far and wide, everybody in Israel knew about it, it was corrupting the entire community of worshipers. What they were doing, they were doing to all Israel. And further along in this study, we're going to tie this to a couple of passages in the New Testament, particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul had to write to the Corinthian church and rebuke them sternly because they were allowing unbelievable immorality in the church and he told them if you don't stop this if you don't put this wickedness out of the church like a cancer it's going to corrupt the whole church 
the metaphor he uses, is leaven or yeast. A little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. This is going to corrupt the whole worshiping community. And thus it had in the time of Eli. This has now reached such critical mass that it's corrupting the whole nation. It's corrupting the whole community. Now, the, the prophet Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. It's incredible how our own hearts can deceive us. And we can end up in something like Eli's sons here, where we think we're doing our priestly duty, we think we're serving God, and here they are committing fornication with the women that are there in the temple. They're violating the laws of Moses. They're treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And I don't even know if they had any conscience left. And this is one of the dangers of leadership. We can deceive ourselves thinking that there's a double standard. Listen to me carefully here. We can think there's a double standard. One set of rules for the people, a whole different set of rules for the leader. This happens all the time in civil government. We have senators and congressmen who have been elected to make laws down here in Washington, and the very laws they've made, they break. They think they're above the law. They think there's a a different set of rules for them, because after all, we're in the government. We're in the White House. We're in the Supreme Court. No, the same rules apply to everyone. And quite a few congressmen, senators, governors, mayors, have ended up in prison behind bars because they took this to the extreme of thinking, oh, there's a different standard for me. No, there's no different standard. And spiritual leaders need to constantly remind themselves, I'm under the same set of rules everybody else is under. There's no special exceptions, special privileges for me because I'm the senior pastor or this leader or this elder or this deacon. No. They were dead wrong if they were thinking that. Now, it gets worse. Following along further in 1 Samuel 2 from verse 27. Maybe Eli's sons thought they were getting away with something. And, by the way, uh, to his credit, at least Eli tried to confront them about what they were doing, but we'll find out in this next passage, he didn't do enough in God's eyes, but he did at least question them, why are you doing these things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. What you're doing is not a good thing, but they continued to do it. They didn't listen to their father. But now I want you to follow this next 
part of the story very carefully. And again, I've uh, highlighted certain portions and even put certain words in all caps to bring this to your attention. I'll do it as we're reading it. 1 Samuel 2, verse 27. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him. So this is not a message given directly to Eli's sons. This is a message given directly to Eli. And regardless of what was going on with Eli's sons and even his rather lame attempt to rebuke them for what they were doing, God holds Eli accountable and responsible for everything that is going on. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, it doesn't say he gathered Eli and his sons together and delivered this address to the whole family. This is a personal message for Eli. This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? Of course, he's referring to Aaron figuratively as his father because of this uh, line of priests that would have come down through the generations from Aaron. So it, it's a figurative term, your father. He's speaking about Aaron. When they were in Egypt under Pharaoh, I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Verse 29. Listen to this very carefully. Why do you scorn my sacrifice? We might think, why are you allowing your sons to scorn my sacrifice? It's not what the word of the Lord says. Why do you do it? Here again, God is holding Eli accountable for everything that's been going on. Why do you scorn my sacrifice? By the way, that word scorn in the Hebrew means to kick or to trample on. It's translated like that in the Amplified. Why do you trample on my sacrifice? Talking to Eli. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling. And here is the heart of the matter. Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Now, a couple of very important things here. The word honor, why do you honor your sons? It's the same word, kabod, the word we've mentioned over and over again, translated glory. Why do you honor, why do you give glory to your sons more than me? 
by fattening yourselves. God here includes Eli in this whole corruption of the offerings that they were taking to fatten themselves. Now, there's nothing directly mentioned in the scriptures about Eli himself doing that. I don't know if he was also partaking in that custom and practice or not, but in keeping with the rest of this passage, God holds him directly responsible, no different than if he was one of the ones there eating the meat and the fat. Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, those who honor, kabod, me, I will honor. Those who give me glory above all else, I will honor. I will give glory. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your family line, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel in your family line, there will never be an old man, every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar, will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. Lord, have mercy. Verse 34. And what happens to your two sons, now we find out their names, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind, I will firmly establish his house, and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead. Appoint me to some priestly office so I can have some food to eat. This is scary stuff, folks. You know, they they may have thought that God was looking the other way, or God was saying, Yeah, you, you guys are special, you're priests. I'm I'm gonna wink at what you're doing. Nothing of the sort. God saw all that was going on. He was so grieved and Pardon my French, but he was so ticked off. Man, when his word finally comes to Eli, he says, I'm going to kill both of your sons in one day. You have really, really ticked me off now. And coming back to verse 30, 
I think we get to the heart of the whole matter, and this is why this whole story ends so tragically with God's glory departing from Israel. It, it's all centered around this one word, kabod, glory. The real indictment that God is bringing against Eli here is summed up very simply, you honored your sons more than me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Although Eli went through the motions of telling his sons what they were doing was bad, was wrong, obviously he did not do enough. He did not restrain them. We will find later on, God tells him, God expected Eli to put a stop to all of this, not just to say, oh, bad boys, you shouldn't be doing that. Because apparently, what God read from this whole thing was, Eli prefers his sons to me. He's actually elevated them to a place higher than Jehovah God. He's giving them more honor than he's giving me by allowing them to go on with these evil practices rather than restraining them and stopping them. Far be it from me, God says, those who honor me, kabod, I will honor. The whole issue here centers around one word, glory. What are you doing with the glory of God? Eli was giving more glory to his sons than he was giving to the Lord. And so, when God finally shows up, he doesn't even waste his words with Hophni and Phinehas. He confronts Eli, and he says, You scorned my sacrifice. You fattened yourself. You honored your sons more than you honored me. And now I'm going to lower the boom. His biggest failure was in not giving glory to God. He honored his wicked sons more than he honored the Lord. <clears throat> you know, we're told in Romans 2.11, God is no respecter of persons. He has no favorites. He is impartial in all of his judgments. Maybe Eli, or maybe his sons, or maybe both, they thought, well, you know, we're priests. God's going to cut us a little slack here. No, no, no. God shows no partiality in his judgments. I don't care whether you're king, prime minister, president, or the, the least and the lowest on the street. All will stand before the same God and be judged by the same standards. God promised 
swift and fierce judgment for this complete moral failure that took place on Eli's watch. Maybe he wasn't directly committing all of these sins. Nevertheless, God holds him responsible for allowing it to take place. And one of the things you learn in all of these stories, you, you learn it again further along in First Samuel in the story of Israel's first king, Saul. God is patient. He, he, he gives things time, and one of the reasons he gives later on in the book of Revelation, he gives people space to repent. That's one of the reasons why he waits. He is long-suffering, and he waits hoping for repentance. But when he sees no sign of repentance, his judgment can suddenly come, and then without any remedy. God is patient, but he is also zealous for his glory. Now, let me just introduce the next part of the story, and we'll have to pick it up here next time. We keep shifting back and forth between Eli and his sons and Samuel. We have this terribly negative example in Eli and his sons, and we have this beautiful example of the up-and-coming Samuel. Same thing happens here. 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 to 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Interesting. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord. It doesn't say Eli ministered before the Lord. It says Samuel did. And there's even some question as to how well Eli knew the Lord. His sons didn't know the Lord. And based on what I read in the next few verses, you have to wonder, did this guy know the Lord? In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. That verse 3 is fascinating. Eli and Samuel are both lying down, but not in the same place. Where is Samuel? He's as close as he can get to the presence of God. He's in the temple where the ark of God was. Eli's outside somewhere. Notice a few other things that are given in this description. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. The word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. What we read in these opening verses of chapter 3 is a picture of a nation that is now in dangerous spiritual decline. 
they've come to such a point that their priest is almost blind physically. He's lying down away from the temple and the ark. And there's no word of the Lord. There, there's no spiritual vision. The, the, the whole nation has just sunk into spiritual darkness. This expression, the word of the Lord, <clears throat> the word of the Lord was rare. It reminds me of a prophecy that comes years later through the prophet Amos. And I believe it applies to our present day. Amos 8.11 Days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You know, there's a spirit in our culture now. People are willing to listen to anything under the sun except for the word of the Lord. They'll follow any crazy philosophy, any crazy religion, but not the word of the Lord. And there's a famine in the land now. Not of food, not of water, but of hearing the unadulterated, anointed Word of the Lord. It had come to such a state in Eli's day that there were no longer any visions. That There just wasn't any uh, prophetic ministry. There was no word of the Lord. Uh, there was no spiritual vision. And I think his physical blindness is just a symptom of the widespread spiritual blindness that had overtaken not only the priesthood, but the whole nation. They were blinded. And so it is in our day. Our nation is in critical, dangerous blindness and spiritual decline. The word of the Lord is rare. Vision and revelation is rare. And there's very little interest in what God has to say. One other thing, and we'll have to stop here, very critical. It says, one night, so we know the setting here from verse 2, it's nighttime. One night, Eli was lying down in his usual place. There's a red flag there also. Nothing wrong with lying down at night. But the, the writer adds, in his usual place. I think it tells us something more about the, the spiritual state that Eli has now come to. He's old, he's fat, we will learn, he's blind, and apparently all he ever does is lie around, lying in his usual place. But look at verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Well, if you know your scriptures, the lamp of God was never to go out. But it would seem that it's about to go out here, 
Eli's lying down, Samuel's lying down, nobody seems to be concerned about making sure that the lamp of God keeps burning right through the night. Because in Exodus, in the Law of Moses, it was very clearly spelled out. One of the duties of the priests was to keep these lamps burning all night long. Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21. Command the Israelites to bring you, he's talking to Aaron and his sons, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that is in front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Well, it seems that they no longer cared whether the lamps were burning or not, and although it had not completely gone out now, the implication from verse 3, it's about to go out and everybody's sleeping through the night. Eli lying down in his usual place and the lamp about to go out, no word of the Lord, no vision, both physical and spiritual. Vision has left completely, and they're sinking into spiritual darkness. Very, very dangerous situation. Very dark picture is painted for us here. The only bright spot is the boy Samuel. There he is, ministering before the Lord under Eli. And when we continue next week, we'll find that God begins to speak to young Samuel. And the first revelation he gives to Samuel is the coming judgment that he's going to bring on Eli and his house. This, again, is not a happy story. It's a very tragic one. But as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, God has given us these examples in Scripture to warn us, this is what not to do. This is how not to do it. And this is how the glory of God departed from a nation because they allowed things to reach this level of decline. Let's stop here and continue next time in our study. Let's pray. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus that you've given us in your scriptures both positive examples and you've given us some negative ones also to warn us of how not to live, of what not to do. And God, as we're reading through this story of Eli and his sons, it puts such a fear in our hearts. Lord, we don't want you to depart from us. We don't want to lose your presence 
and your glory. And so, God, grant us tender hearts to repent quickly when you speak to us, when you warn us. Help us not to put uh, family, flesh, tradition, anything above you. Help us all to honor you first and foremost in our lives, above and before anything else, because you deserve the highest praise, you deserve the highest glory. God, I pray that you would keep us, have mercy on us, finish the work that you've started in each one of our lives, cleanse us with the water of your word, wash us in the precious blood of Jesus, burn up everything and anything in us that is not pleasing in your sight with the fire of your Holy Spirit, that we may continue to please you, honor you, glorify you, and serve you. God bless each and every one who's joined with us here tonight. Keep us as the apple of your eye. Keep us until the very end as you complete what you've started in our lives. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, because there is no higher name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.